0: We invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are, uh, we're wrap, wrapped up chapter one last week, and we're headed on down the road as we continue our sermon series in what it means, uh, as the Apostle Paul lays it out for us in Ephesians to be in Christ. How does that impact your life? How does that impact mine uh, if we are believers? One of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of on Sunday mornings before I, I get up here, Uh, is how I look. Now, I don't mean I'm like, you know, all obsessed with how I look, but, you know, if I've had, you know, little eggs and bacon in the morning, I want to make sure that when I get up here, you know, there's not a little bacon in between my teeth or my hair's not doing crazy things. I want to be kind of a seen but not seen, if you know what I mean. And and the thing about being up here as opposed to being y'all, y'all are kind of shaded a little bit. So you look really, really great. But there's no hiding from the light up here. <laughs> and the light does not lie. And Stacy's like, preacher, brother, <laughs> is, is there? do I have something? I'm like, okay, all right, thank you. The light doesn't have any emotion. It doesn't care what I look like, but it's certainly going to show you. And so I'm like, I you know, want to look okay. In fact, I checked with the senior personnel management over there on Nurk Avenue, that senior vice president, my wife, Cindy. And a few years ago, I said, can I wear shorts when it's hot outside when, when, when I preach? Can I wear shorts? She said, absolutely not. I said, why can't I do it? She said, because the light doesn't lie. And she wasn't saying my legs were so good that you all would be distracted. She was saying something else. (laughs) The light shows us for what we are. The light shows anything for what it brings it to our view. The book of Ephesians is God's light, not only to look at his glory, but to look at our lives as well. In the first chapter of Ephesians, the light has been shining on the glory of God and the benefit of that glory to people who put their faith in Christ. So what you see on the screen is like a very small list of all of the blessings that belong to believers who put their faith in Christ. And and we could put 15 times uh, what's on there now if we really took the time to go through it, but just a handful of things that are ours if we're in Christ, every spiritual blessing God is not stingy. He gives us every spiritual blessing we need for our faith in Christ. Not only does he give us every spiritual blessing, but believers have redemption and forgiveness. And God doesn't give those gifts reluctantly, but he adopts us into his family. He makes us sons and daughters through our relationship with Christ. Those are amazing blessings. Believers have a new life, and it's not just a new outlook on life. It's not a temporal gift that's going to last for a little while, but eventually run its course. I put a new uh, mower, I didn't actually do it, I had someone else do it, put a new mower belt on my blade, because on my ride mower, because it wasn't cutting right. And that blade's working just fine now, but it's going to run out, it's going to wear out, and I'm going to need a new one eventually. This new life that we have in Christ goes on forever. Believers also, in this day and age, God makes sure that we're equipped to be able to follow him and trust in him. So he gives us a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation and a spirit of knowledge. So the holistic picture of of Ephesians chapter one is absolutely remarkable. And when the light shines on that, you just want to stand up and say, amen, praise God. And then we come to chapter two. (laughs) And then we come to the first three verses of chapter two. And Paul changes his focus. He takes the the light, so to speak, off of, of the Lord God and he puts the light on your condition and my condition and the condition of every human being who's ever walked on the planet, except for the Lord Jesus himself, through the light of our reality. Who am I when the light really shines on me? What, what is it going to reveal? And I can tell you it's not a pretty picture. Now, why would the Bible that talks about grace and mercy and compassion, these things that are, that are on the screen this morning, why would the Bible then turn the corner and say, now, you have a real serious problem, humanity. You are you, you have a real problem. Your, your soul and your mind and your heart, they're, they're corrupted and they're damaged and they're broken and you're spiritually dead. Why would Scripture do that? Is God trying to bully us into believing? Is God trying to say, unless you, unless you get it right, I'm going to come get you? No what God is doing is being gracious to us, and he's telling us the truth. If, if I actually did have some spinach in between my teeth, I, you know, I hope that my friend would say, hey, before you go up there, c- come over here for a second. And what God is doing this morning, I believe, through these verses is saying to us, let's look realistically at the condition of the human heart apart from Christ. So we have to remember that. We're talking about what it means if we are apart from Christ, What's the condition of humanity? And I think this is important for believers for a couple reasons. One is we tend to be a very prideful group of folks. And we tend to think because we got Jesus, we're the best and we're the brightest and everybody should be like us. And we struggle terribly at times with pride. There are other moments when believers don't believe God's grace for them and they despair. And so this real perfect expression of our condition helps us with those extremes, and it allows us to see ourselves for who, God, how God sees us, in order that we might know the need in our lives. When you think about what the world might say about being apart from Christ or, or, or their relationship with God, you can even kind of leave Jesus out of it. There are a lot of different notions in, in our day and age, and they've been around for a long time. Some folks say, you know, I'm working hard, and I'm almost at to the top, and God's just, you know, I put my hand out, and he puts his hand out, and brings me up, and kind of gets me over the finish line. You know, he, he gives me a, a leg up, so to speak, or gives me a hand up. A lot of people say, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of what God's there for. He just I can do most of it, but it gets me across the finish line. Other would say, you know, you just have to mature a little bit. You've got to grow, and the more you grow, the more you learn, and, and, and the more you'll, you'll see God and kind of understand things, and, and God will appreciate your growth and everything will be okay. So I went to that great theologian, David. Bowie, who's, uh, I don't know why you're laughing. He's, he's a brilliant guy. I've been listening to David for a long time. Uh, but I love this quote, aging is the extraordinary process where you become the person you should have been. Uh, and the notion is, you know, God, I'm, I'm getting better and you should recognize that I'm getting better. A lot of people think that way. And then others uh, of us are what I call scratch and dent folks. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, we think about going to buy a scratch and dent whatever the appliance is, the washer, the dryer, the refrigerator, it, it, it actually works. You know, if you plug the refrigerator, it's going to get cold, but it's bruised on the outside. It, 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 you know, somebody dropped it or somebody banged into it with something. Uh, and so you might look at yourself, well, you know, I know I'm a little twisted. I, I know I'm a little bent. I know I've got a few scrapes here and there, but I'm a pretty good person inside. And, and so fundamentally, God you know, he's going to like me because I'm, I'm a pretty likable guy. I'm a pretty likable gal. So you may have found yourself at one time or another thinking those types of thoughts. But what does the light of Ephesians reveal about the true nature of humanity? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work now in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would protect us this morning from, uh, from our own indifference, uh, from our own self-righteousness, Lord, we could easily read this passage and just kind of blow it off and just ignore it. Assume it isn't true. We could become indignant. How dare God speak of us in these terms? How insulting. Father, we could uh, simply ignore. I I choose to think of myself differently. Lord, you don't give us this message, the stark contrast to chapter 1 because you want to harm us but rather because it is when we see our deep need for You that Your Spirit works in our hearts and our lives, showing us that need in order that we might see Your salvation. And so, Father, as we deal with the the difficult passage this morning, with a passage that is not complementary to the human condition, but says rather that humanity has a problem, that we would uh, hear these words as they are intended, as a gift to us from You. The opportunity to... Uh, do honest and self-evaluation, that we would see our true condition apart from Christ in order that we would see more deeply his love and his compassion, his mercy. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, guard and guide our conversation. Lord, this is not uh, what I think. It needs to be your holy, perfect word. So we uh, pray for the one who's teaching. Lord, you know all of my sin. I pray that you would forgive me. That you would not let me be a hindrance of what you want us to learn and to know this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us. And we pray in your name. Amen. So, Sermon of Sentence is a little bit longer because there's a there's a lot in here, but hopefully we'll work through it in a reasonable pace. Apart from Christ, and that's important that we're talking about apart from Christ, my shortcomings and deliberate disobedience against God have forever killed my desire for Him, and have replaced that desire with unquenchable, self-centered desires that leave me spiritually dead and deserving of judgment. What that says in, in three short bursts is this. The first is this, we are spiritually dead. The second is that we are, because of that, we are deeply flawed. And the third is that is that we are, therefore, deserving of God's judgment. So that's how we want to work through this passage this morning. Let's talk about that first notion of being spiritually dead. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you used to live, so on and so forth. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Is Paul speaking metaphorically? Is Paul saying, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like somebody who's dead? The language doesn't allow for that. What Paul is saying here is that the condition of, of the spirit, of, of, of man and woman's spirit, is that it is literally spiritually dead. It has no love for God. There is no emotion. There is no fidelity. There is, there is no joy in our hearts because there is no relationship. You think about the folks with whom you're closest, and you think about the joy you have in those friendships, or you think about the, the love you have in those family relationships, and all of that is absent because we are spiritually dead. There is no emotional connection between me and God apart From Christ. I might say the right things. I might even act pretty nice from time to time, but I am spiritually dead in relationship to God. Secondly, I have no reason to believe in him. My intellect is not stirred towards him, so I don't think about God in terms of his grace and his mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. The, The spiritual death in which I find myself leaves no room for me to put my trust in him, to put two and two together, so to speak, intellectually and come to faith. Therefore, there's no movement in my heart or in my mind to to seek him out, to pursue him. I'd rather he just left me alone if he's even there at all. Let me go my way and I'll let him go his way. And so if you want to kind of look at this from a, from a biblical language point of view, you can say that I, I neither, neither love nor care for God in my heart or my mind or my soul. You think about God speaking to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy. He said, look, I'm bringing you out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to love you. You're going to be my own. You're going to be precious to me. You're going to be my chosen ones, not because you're the biggest nation, not because you're the best, but because I've set my affections on you. So, so love me with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. What does Jesus say when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing I could do, Jesus? And Jesus says, that's very clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But my spiritual condition leaves me void of any of that thinking or any of those emotions towards him. And again, this is not metaphorical language. I I hope you've never said in your life to someone, you're dead to me. You're not saying that they're literally dead. You're, you're, you're expressing a, a, a brokenness in the relationship. So my sister and I grew up here in St. Louis cheering for the same teams, loving the same teams. And then a f- years ago, it's probably been a, a, probably close to 20 years, she moved to Detroit and she became a Detroit Red Wings fan. I know. <laughs> Thank you. And I had to say to her, you're dead to me not really but when we we're cheering for hockey it's kind of kind of that thing but the, the it's not it's metaphorical remember the, the story story the prodigal son if you've ever read that that story jesus is telling the story about the, the the little brother who went out went off and blew all the money and and ruined everything and then he came back and, and he repented and his father ran and threw his arms around An older brother got indignant he was so mad that his little brother was being welcomed back in and what does the dad say this brother of yours who was what dead is alive again we had to celebrate we had to, he wasn't literally dead this is literal spiritual death. It's not metaphorical. And what Paul is saying is that we are dead to God. Now, lest you, well, let me come to Andrew Lincoln's quote because I love the way he puts this. If Christ's resurrection in, introduced the life of the age to come ahead of time, then one state prior to participation in that resurrection life must, comparatively speaking, be viewed as death. That's exactly right. Why why does Jesus say you must be born again? Because you're spiritually and I am spiritually dead. Now, unless you think Paul is being self-righteous, and he's saying, now now you guys, y'all out there, you are spiritually dead, but I've always been a good guy. Go to Romans chapter 7 and read, and this is a, I've compressed verses 17 through 24. Read them in your in their entirety, and they're, they're even much more uh, profound than this. But Paul is doing self-examination, and it has, apart from Christ, he's looking at his life. If he didn't know Jesus, what would be said about his heart? And he is in the pit of despair. He is, he has come to the end of himself, and he is in absolute spiritual and emotional agony. I do not understand my actions. Have you ever said that? Have you ever, you know, committed that sin for the whatever number of time you're like, I can't believe I did it again. That's what Paul is saying here. I don't understand my actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. When I want to do right, evil is close at hand. What a wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Paul puts himself right next to you and me and the rest of humanity, and he says, we are spiritually dead. We're unable to help ourselves. We have no inclination to move towards God. How does that work its way out in our lives? Because we're not evil every day and always doing terrible, the absolute worst things, but but what is the tenor of our lives? What what is the general uh, overview of the way in which we approach life? And that's where we discover in verses 2 and 3 that we are a deeply flawed people. Paul says this, the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, there he is including himself again, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul uses several words here to describe kind of how this works out in our life, and the first word he uses is walking. So so think about when you walk. When you're out for a stroll with someone, typically you're out for a stroll with a friend or a spouse. Or maybe you say to the kids, hey, let's walk up to the park and enjoy the playground and, and then we'll walk back home. Typically when you're walking, you're with someone with, with whom you're comfortable. Or you're walking by yourself and you put on a headset and you're listening to, you know, I might be listening to David Bowie. You might be listening to somebody who, you know, is still, I, I don't even know if David Bowie's still alive anymore. But you might be listening to somebody more modern. Uh, you you might be listening to a sermon or or a book on tape that you love, but you're in a relaxed place. I was coming out of Spencer's Grill early yesterday morning and Scott and uh, Holly and Tom Warner were walking by. Scott Holly said, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. Can we just walk around the block? And so I parked the car and got out and we did a walk around the block and had a little five-minute conversation, totally comfortable, totally at ease. Paul says, because we are spiritually dead, we are totally at ease apart from God. No no desire, no, no passion to move toward him, and we 're not only walking in fellowship, comfortable outside of a relationship with God, but we 're also allowing other influences to to gain the upper hand and to move us continually away from him. so the first thing we 're doing is we 're following the course of this world now. Often in Scripture, the majority of the time in Scripture, not always, but the majority of the time in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when you see that notion of the world, and and it's spoken in these terms, it's talking not about the globe, not about the the, the creation, but it's talking about a way of thinking. It's talking about a philosophy. John uses this all over the book of Revelation where he talks about, about the world as it's in rebellion against God, and he's talking about a philosophy that is a godless philosophy, And the notion here is that we are following a godless philosophy. We are anti-God in our thinking. And we agree with the rest of humanity that, you know, as long as we can kind of put God in the box we want to put him in, we'll be okay with that. But really, we're in charge here. That's a godless way of thinking, even if you offer platitudes to the contrary. He also says, not only are we following this anti-God thinking, but we're also being influenced by who? By following the prince of the power of the air. The evil one is at work. There are are physical people, and there are also spiritual beings. And there are angelic beings that are following God and glorifying God, and there are angelic beings that have turned their back and have have led the rebellion, Satan being the chief among them. You're like, you got to be kidding me. You don't still believe in a devil in this day and age. My response is, how on earth could you not believe a devil if you're looking at the world in an honest way? There's, There's beautiful things in this world, but there's so much tragedy and brokenness and evil. That cannot simply be explained by what I can see. It, it just is not possible. And Scripture is very clear that we join in in following the prince of the power of the air, the one who is driving humanity to disobedience, to act of rebellion against God. Where does that leave us? It leaves us living among those who love to follow their passions and carrying out the desires of body and mind. In other words, we love to live for ourselves. Now, we may, again, gloss it over. We may do some good things for other people. I'm not saying we're always as evil as we possibly could be. But even my generosity, apart from Christ, can be very self-serving. It can be all about me and not about others. Even the best things that I do, I, if, if I'm honest and I look at them, I do them for what I get out of them and not to help you. Have you ever had this thought? If I were in charge around here, things would be different. Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever had that thought because you were upset about what happened to somebody else? Maybe, but most often when you say, I'd like to change some things around here, you're saying, I want to be in charge because I don't like what's happening to me. I was driving down Guy Road the other day. It's a road that goes by Kirkwood Park. I live in a neighborhood over there. I was driving down Kirkwood Road or, uh, Guy Road, and for like the, I don't know, quibillionth time, I hit one of the potholes on Guy Road. And I said, if I were the king of Kirkwood, Guy Road would be paved. I wouldn't be hitting these potholes. I wasn't worried about the axles on your car. I was worried about the axle on my car. I wasn't worried about the tire tread on your car. I wasn't worried about the fact that you might drive down a guy or get a jolt and, and feel the pain in your neck and back. I was worried about King Tom. And if King Tom were charged, things would be different around here. That's where we end up. So my passions, I go for them. My desires, no holes barred. I'll try to look nice in front of other people. I'll try not to, try not to get caught doing, doing some of the stuff I really want to do. But quite frankly, I'm living... For myself. Well, how do you recognize this? I mean, this 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 seems like if everybody were doing this, it would just be so blatantly obvious that, that everybody would know we'll run the other direction. So we did a little research project this week. We hit a hidden camera in one of the families of Green Tree Community Church. And you better start praying it wasn't your house. Because in just a second it's gonna be on the screen behind me. And what we did is we went back to verse one in, in chapter two where it says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we ask this question, do we have any trespassers? Do we have any sinners here? We're going to ferret them out if they're here. Now, let's get our definition straight. A trespass is when you know you're not supposed to do something, you do it anyway. So eat your vegetables before dinner, don't get in that cookie jar, got it. Right in the cookie jar, eat the cookies. That's a trespass. I know I'm not supposed to do it, I do it anyway. A sin is a little bit different. A sin, by, by Paul's definition, is I know I should do something that's good and I just leave it undone. So I look out the window, and Cindy's out there cutting the grass. She doesn't really, but let's just say she was. And I say, you know what? I'm going to enjoy watching the rest of the baseball game, and she's doing a super job. Or I could get up and go outside and say, why don't you let me cut the grass, and you go inside. It's not evil for me not to do it, but I'm leaving something undone that I shouldn't. Does that make sense? Are we good? Sends in trespasses? So one of you families out there, we have some trespassing going on, some deliberate disobedience. Watch this.
1: Woof, what is going on with my hair? My bottom eyelashes all curl the wrong way. Sarah,
2: homework time. Time to put the phone down. Time to work on that essay. So I'm going to come back in about 20 minutes. And When I get back, I want to see 350 characters of fine academic profundity.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was just getting started.
2: a girl. All right, here we go.
1: Quit yelling at me. Besides, my teacher never actually reads our essays. Oh my goodness, he's so cute. I could just kiss that little face.
2: Good, Sarah, if that girl is not on task, daggone it, I am gonna take that phone and throw it out the window. Though, I definitely was not about to shell out more cash for AppleCare, so maybe just a week-long grounding. How's that essay coming?
1: Great. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Like, copy and paste this article so it looks quirk.
2: Great job, kiddo. Oh, they are so cute. I could just kiss that little face.
1: <sighs> Close one. A fool didn't even notice. You girl just copied a
0: pop up ad. <laughs> She's right there. Great job. <laughs> Not that you would ever do that, but what was the trespass? Did you tell the truth about your project? He lied about it, right? And you and he didn't even notice. We pulled a fast one on him, right? So again, she would never do that in real life. But that's a trespass. I'm gonna lie to him. I'm 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 gonna do what I want to do, and I'm if I need to, if I need to lie, no big deal. So we got some trespassers around it. But sin, not quite doing what we ought to do. Watch the screen again.
2: shoot, I'm running late. Guys, don't touch that. I'll fold it when I get back. Bye, honey. Oh, Mary Berry, you are right. That presentation is disastrous.
1: Bye, Mom. I wonder if she left any dinner. Watching the Great British Baking Show is making me hungry. Should we fold the laundry for Mom? Are you going to suggest I do more work after my long day?
2: Yes. Don't knock it over. That's all she said. That's all she wants. Yeah. Besides, we are binge watching the heck out of these butt cakes. Cool.
0: (laughs) And our other actor over on this side. Thank you very much. (laughs) Good job. Just don't knock it over. We should fold it, but just don't knock it over. and It'll be okay. Leaving it undone. Now, we can laugh about that this morning, but in reality, we know that we are deeply flawed people, that, that Ephesians, Paul has actually gotten, gotten it exactly right. It doesn't have to be some heinous crime out there. It can be in our, in our own family and friendship relationships with one another. We tend to walk comfortably following the philosophy of this world that goes against God and His grace, following the influence of the prince of the power of the air, and just living for ourselves. Well, if that's the case, what's God's opinion? Uh, of all this, how does he react to uh, to our uh, callous disregard uh, for a relationship with him? And Paul uses two words, two phrases to describe that. The first is in verse two, when he says, "We're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has not work in the sons of disobedience." So the notion here is an act of rebellion. It's thinking and feeling that lead to a behavior, or to say it another way, the seed of rebellion is indifference, and indifference grows into discontent. And discontent finds its full expression in willful revolt. So think about it, not necessarily in terms of a revolution, but just think about it in terms of a, of a personal revolution in, in human relationships. The first thing that, that we say is, well, I don't really care about that. I don't, I don't really care that, uh, you know, it's dishonest to cut and paste and call it my own work. Or I, I don't really care that, that mom really has had a long day and I should help her fold. I, I'm just indifferent to it. And, and by the way, that's an unreasonable request. So the next thing we think is it grows into discontent. I'm being treated unfairly. I, I've become a victim, and other people are trying to hurt me, and, and I don't like that. Dad's being unreasonable. Mom's being unreasonable. My teacher, my boss, whomever are, are being unreasonable. Therefore, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go my own way, and I end up revolting. I end up moving in a way that leads me into rebellion against God. That's what it means to be a son of disobedience. So the we don't even have to 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 think about uh, our own lives, we can look at Scripture here because we see Scripture is replete with people who fit this category. Think of Cain, who who had discontent over what God told him about offerings, about what was expected. And, and that led to him uh, being uh, angry about it and, and thinking that God was being unreasonable, which led to him doing what he wanted to do, which was take out his anger on his brother and he murdered him. You think about Absalom, the son of David, who was very willing to see his own father murdered if it meant that he could ascend to the throne of Israel. You think about Jesus in the Gospels confronting the Pharisees, who, who were not only rejecting God, but were bringing others along to, to reject him even more than they were. So we read in Matthew 23, woe to you Pharisees, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself sons of disobedience, children who decide they want to go their own way and act out and live out. We don't have to go to our own lives, but certainly if we do a careful examination, we find that attitude of Cain, that attitude of Absalom, that attitude of the Pharisees in our own hearts and minds. Where does that leave us? Where does that end us with our relationship with God? And that's the second phrase that he uses to describe us. Not only sons of disobedience, but what? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath apart from Christ and in rebellion against God, humanity ultimately deserves the consequences of that rebellion would you really want to worship a god who who said you don't sin but but trust me and follow me and and, and if you go against me you're going to die and then never follow through if you if you can't trust god to give you a clear and accurate definition of trespasses and sins how on earth would he be so foolish as to trust his definition of grace and mercy and salvation you can't have one without the other you have to have both together in perfect harmony god's wrath is not a knee-jerk reaction. It's not an explosion because he's lost his temper. John Stott speaks to this in his commentary, and he says this, God's wrath is not like man's. It is not bad temper, so that he may fly off the handle at any moment. It is neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It is never arbitrary, since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable and it is never subject to mood or whim or caprice. God is completely consistent in his hatred of sin in his refusal to allow sin to stand because he knows that ultimately sin leads to death and he cannot allow that to go unaddressed. And so he is going to exercise ultimate judgment against that Behavior that way of life. If we choose to continue to ignore him, well, if it's not a fit of anger, then what is a healthy definition of God's wrath? And I want to come back to stop because I think he hits the nail right on the head. What is His wrath? If it is neither an arbitrary reaction nor an impersonal, impersonal process, and this is a, a rem- this next sentence is about as good as it gets outside of Scripture. This is so right on. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. Ultimately, what we're going to find next week is that 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 statement right there is what took Jesus to the cross. Because what God is doing at the cross is he's exercising that wrath for your sin and for my sin. But we must understand ourselves for who we are. We are deserving of God's wrath and God looks at both our actions as well as our motives. So you think about the, you think about the judge who, who condemns someone, who finds someone guilty. And let, let's say that someone's died. And you could be convicted of manslaughter. You could be convicted of first-degree murder. The difference between those two is only one thing. It's what's the motion and the, the motive behind it. Did someone plan this or was, was it somewhat of an accident? And what God does, he looks at our hearts and he sees the motives behind our actions. And he says, everybody is guilty. That's what the light of Ephesians shines on your life and on my life this morning. We cannot sugarcoat it. We ought not overlook it, and we ought not be offended. Rather, we should thank God that he is gracious enough and compassionate enough to show us our need for a Savior. We should be thankful that Ephesians is shining the light on my condition apart from Christ, that I'm spiritually dead, therefore deeply flawed and deserving of God's judgment, which leads to the obvious question. What can be done? Come back next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we don't just want to wallow in in the brokenness of this world as if there were no hope, but it would be unwise and foolish of us to overlook the true condition of our hearts apart from Christ. So as challenging as it might be, we do thank you for this this word in Ephesians chapter 2. We thank you that Paul tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, who we are as a race, as, 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 as a human race apart from Christ. But I thank you, Lord, that those words are in there, apart from Christ, because it means that there is hope. So today, Lord, I pray that we would just be willing to hear your word about the condition of humanity and the problem that is facing us in order that we might begin to ask the question, what can be done? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.